I'd like to thank Factor for sponsoring this episode. Hi folks, Andy here, and I imagine wherever you are and whatever you are doing as you listen to this podcast, you've got a lot on. Tomorrow isn't far away, and if you're like me, you've got 101 things to do already. So why not let Factor take one of those stresses away? Factor will provide you with out-of-this-world, pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals right to your door. With over 35 options to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan and veggie, everyone even your own little non-human intelligences are catered for. There are more than 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly planning even tastier with snacks, smoothies and more to get you through breakfast, lunch and beyond. Flexibility is key with Factor as you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash UFO50 and use code UFO50 to get 50% off. That's code UFO50 at factormeals.com slash UFO50 to get 50% off. This is Ross Coulthard and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and we are moving out of February and into March in the coming days as you listen to this and joining me for another appearance on the podcast. I think he must be the guest record holder um, at the minute. I would say just from guest appearances, maybe four or five, uh, not including roundtables and everything else like that. He is an author, historian, researcher and absolutely now a bona fide authority on the history of the UFO topic. He asked me to say that. Uh, and friend of mine, Mr. Graham Rendell. Graham, welcome back. <laughs> Hi, Andy. Yeah, um, yeah, I really did tell you to say I was an authority on UFOs, not. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you said bona fide and I didn't know what that meant, but I read it anyway. So I hope, I hope grammatically that's correct. But no, de- you definitely are, Graham. In the, in the few years I've known you, that you're gonna rise through the ranks but i'm not going to keep sniffing your arse as we as we discuss this so uh, graham you've been on like i say many times i think it probably all in including round tables and stuff well over 10 12 appearances on the podcast um, but very briefly for those who aren't familiar with you um give us a quick background of who you are and how you came to be involved in the ufo topic yeah, long-time aviation um, enthusiast, um, long-time uh, in- interest in UFOs since, well, 50 years now, you know, getting on for 50 years now, so quite a long time. Um, World War II, interested in that, all those things came together with a, a Foo Fighters book, uh, History, I wrote in 2021, and then from there I've written a few books about pilot and aircrew encounters with uh, UFOs, the latest of which I hope we're talking about today. Um, your new work then, we're going to talk about Chasing Shadows, Aerial and UFO Encounters, 1955 to 1956. Graham's work is known for being incredibly detailed, uh, so you'd be forgiven for thinking this was encounters from 5 to 8 to 4 minutes to 8 at night, but no, it's not the 24 hour clock, it is the year 1955 to 1956. So Graham, when did you start working on this one? Uh, this one started probably about Easter last year, um, so I had about six months to, to sort of look at it and, and research it and write it, um, and then it was slowing down towards the end of the year. I'd already uh, contacted Bryce to uh, Bryce Zabel, um, who people hopefully will know who he is, uh, Hollywood producer, uh, co-producer of Dark Skies, also co-host of, of the podcast Need to Know, 
um, and also somebody I met in Roswell last year and gone with uh, like a house on fire. And uh, that's he also too. Graham. Uh, he mm. also co-authored the book AD After Disclosure with Richard Dolan. He did yes, which I've read and it's very very good. Um, so yeah, somebody who I got on with uh, quite well. Uh, we had a kind of shared interest in the history of, of ufology, not just the current stuff. Um, and then when I asked him to write the foreword, he, he, he said, yeah, straight away, yeah, I'll do it. So I was waiting for that and also waiting for the artwork from our, our good friends, uh, Olaf Rocker and Dan Zetterstrom of this parish. Um, so that all came together at the end of January and then the book came out. So, yeah, uh, here it is. You're, you're putting together a sort of Britannica Encyclopedia Britannica almost collection <laughs> of the UFO history um, and at this rate I think you're going to catch up to modern day sometime around June of this year um, the books come out incredibly detailed Graham a lot of work goes into them mm. they aren't just slapdash here's you know a chat GPT version of a book it's still very much the human element put into it um, what's special for you about this time period because when you're locking in dates now I'm going to look really quickly at the books behind me <laughs> you've got you know 1950 to 1952, 1940 to 1955-56. 1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1956-1
um, sort of things that happen, but they're quite sort of similar and you can learn from what's happened in the past. Hopefully you don't repeat the same mistakes. When we would just look at the kind of, you know, the, the congressional hearings, well, we've actually had that in the past, albeit in a very, very small time frame. It was about 1968 in, in the mid uh, to late 1960s when there was a congressional hearing, but it didn't go anywhere. So this is, you hope that the history is not going to repeat itself there. But also we have official UFO investigation programs you know, set up by the, the US government. Well, the, actually the Air Force did that, the US Air Force did that back in the late 40s, early 50s. And what did it turn out to be? Blue Book effectively turned out to be a public relations exercise on behalf of the Air Force to dampen down enthusiasm for reporting UFOs and to basically dismiss the sightings that were reported to them and anything that didn't fit, uh, you know, like a kind of square peg in a round hole. It was just a case of, well, it's probably just a weather balloon sort of thing. So, and you just wonder how much of that's true today. So knowing about what's happened in the past informs you about what's going to happen in the future. So I think it's very, very important that people who are, especially those who are just coming to the topic now, you know, have one eye on the past because it does inform you know, it gives you a bit of an extra kind of like um, sort of look at what's happening now because you can have one on the past and do that. But for the people who are coming into the topic now, they only have what six, you know, if they came in into 2017 with those famous three FLIR videos, they have six years, you know, just over six years of, of history. Well, actually, the, the, the topic goes, you know, decades, six decades, seven decades, eight decades and more before that. So it's really important. You mentioned, obviously, Blue Book, I think, was in full swing around about 55, 56. You've touched on there were two uh, predecessors to Blue Book, two UFO investigations by the US government before that. Is that right, too? That's correct, yeah. So Blue Book started in March 52, and the two before that were Project Sign and Project Grudge. And Project Sign started at the beginning of 1948. So it took... Um, basically six months or five or six months from when Kenneth Arnold's sighting uh, took place in June 47 and a few others after that. The the, the wheels uh, of intelligence in the United States Air Force or the Air, Army Air Force as it was at that time, it ground quite slowly, but actually they did get to the point where they thought that we're going to have to set something up to look at this officially. And that was Project Sign. And it lasted for about a year. And then just be, be, and about September, October of that year, they came up with what you call an estimate of the situation, which is effectively their ideas as to what's going on. And it was passed up the chain of command and various high-ranking intelligence officers looked at it. And because there wasn't actually any proof to the assertions that these things might be in, interplanetary, because that was one of the conclusions, then it was battered back down uh, by uh, General Hoyt Vandenberg, who was, um, you know, he was one of the really uh, high, you know, high up um, kind of uh, chief officers in the US Air Force, in the intelligence branch. So it went nowhere. And then the focus shifted from, well, what are they? We don't know what they are. Could they possibly be you know, sort of extraterrestrials? Uh, to, well, they must have red stars on them. They must be Russian. Or there's some kind of domestic um, craft that somewhere in America is being built by somebody and they're not telling us, that kind of thing. So the emphasis changed when Project Grudge was set up uh, at the beginning of 1949 to replace Sign, and that's where the emphasis changed to. But actually, Grudge had next to no resources, had next to no personnel. It was effectively just a filing program you know, reports came in and they were just filed. There wasn't that much investigation work done on them. It was only much later, probably about mid-51, uh, maybe a little bit later, when Ruppelt uh, 
came on board. He wasn't still director then of, of Blue Book, but they got him to try and sort of change things around. And then in March 52, he became the director um, and he, he stayed on for a couple of years. Uh, and then there was a whole host of different people in Blue Book, most of whom didn't want anything to do with it. It was a kind of a you know, it was just a step on the ladder of something else. And they're sort of, um, with a few exceptions, but their focus was making themselves look good, making sure they could show reports that said, look, we've cleared up all these sightings. We know what, you know, we can explain all these things. And of course, that would sit well with the, with the generals and, and with the senior officers to say, yeah, you've done a great, great, great job. You know, you've done your, your two years or whatever. Now here's a nice little plum assignment somewhere else for you. So that's what they wanted to do, basically. Just keep the nose clean. Don't rock the boat. Don't say that these things are really strange and we don't know what they are. Just uh, tow the Air Force line. You mentioned, obviously, that time period. Your, your early 50s to mid 50s were only a few years removed from the, the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. What's the cultural state of play that the Russians, and maybe this is a bit of a history lesson for me, thinking I've not done it since I was in school, but, you know, the Russians and the US were, were, were allies, Second World War, you know, what what changed? Or did anything change even? That it was a oh, common yeah. goal, you know, well, defeating Nazism, that all of a sudden they're thinking, you know, these are Russian planes that we're seeing when yeah. they were friends, quote-unquote. I suppose the Russians were always after things to help them win their side, their part of the war. So, you know, they were, it was almost begrudgingly you know, accepting, you know, foreign support kind of thing, because nowadays they, they almost refuse to recognise the fact that, you know, America sent, t- you know, thousands of airplanes and tanks and, and trucks and jeeps, you know, via the Lendley's programme to Russia. And of course, by the end of the Second World War, the Russians had already taken over most of Eastern Europe. Um, so and they were installing their own puppet governments to take you know control of likes of Poland, Czechoslovakia, et cetera, et cetera. And they just never went away. So their occupation forces were there until 1989. Uh, they, you know, the, the yes, okay, governments might have changed, but they were still communist. Uh, you know, they call, the Russians called the shots. So the East Germans, uh, the, 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 the the Czechs, the Bulgarians, Romanians, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they couldn't really jump without the the Russian, uh, you know, the, the the Politburo saying, you know, how hard. Uh, you, you have to jump sort of thing so there was always that and of course on the other side so you have a divide where you have the west and, and nato was set up to bulwark this kind of you know warsaw pact this block uh, the eastern block and so you have two sides which are diametrically opposed in terms of culture and politics and you have this iron curtain which suddenly descends across europe which was sort of churchill's phrase i believe um, and then it became formalized uh, much later on when they built um, you know, the Berlin Wall, which is actually after this time frame. That was more 61, I think. Uh, but also the, there were you know, military buildups. So um, the, the Russians had, had forces in, East, in Eastern Europe poised to attack NATO, if ever such come to that. And of course, we were building up forces. So the Americans were sending, they had stuff stationed in Europe as well. They were building air bases in Germany. They were building air bases in France at this time. So, uh, you know, the forces were stacked against each other and both, side ha- both sides had atomic weapons as well. They'd happened for some time. I think the, the, the Russians exploded their first atom bomb in, some, in the late 40s, might have been 49. And then by 1956, uh, possibly the first, um, I think maybe the first hydrogen bombs had come along as well on the American side. So, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the, the possibilities for actually everybody wiping themselves out were just getting really, really, you know, much more. Uh, at that time. And the, the Cold War was getting towards its coldest point. It wouldn't get there until 62 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it was, you know, sort of cooling, cooling right down to the point of it would just need some kind of flashpoint and everybody would be at each other's throats. 
What's the public perception in the West End of the UFO topic? We've we had the Kenneth Arnold sighting. You know, Roswell's happened at this point, which has been a a news story, yeah. and it's gone away. You know, we're we're not talking worldwide news at that point. There's no social media, no internet, all very much still local and confined. These things, if they're going to reach out, can die off very very quickly as well. And I wonder who's talking about what? Are we still talking about you know Foo Fighters, just lights in the sky? Are we seeing more discs? Are we starting to see triangles yet? What's the state of play there? So the Foo Fighters kind of phenomenon basically died out within sort of six months of the war. Nobody was talking about it uh, in terms of the press um, and you know the general population. Um, there was some sort of murmurings about it in the next few years uh, in intelligence reports here and there, but it, it did sort of die a death very, very shortly afterwards. Once um, Kenneth Arnold's sighting occurred in, in, uh, towards the end of June '47. The papers in America were full of stories of what they called flying discs, because that was the first term that was used. And that was actually the official term as well, because the term UFO or unidentified flying object wouldn't appear until the, until the early 1950s. Um, so that was the that was the term they used. And actually, there was quite a lot of stuff in the papers. It was quite a popular sto- story. If anybody had a local UFO sighting, it wouldn't make the, the local papers. They would often make the, the national papers because in America, stories were syndicated. So you get a news, um, you get a press release, um, sort of report from United Press or Associated Press, and it would just go around all the local papers. So, you know, you could have a, a story up in the northwest of America and it would end up in a southeast Florida um, a newspaper as well. So that, that's how it all worked. And until about 1952, when the two July weekends, um, the things that happened over Washington, D.C., the, the kind of coverage just ramped up. It, it just got you know bigger and bigger, the stories. And there was kind of specula- the speculation grew as to what these things were. And there was a, not quite a sense of panic, but it was just a kind of a sense of frustration and worry maybe as to what these things were. You know, were they Russian? Um, it wasn't the kind of case of were they Chinese, but were they Russian or were they something else entirely? Why were they just flying over the, the States at will? Um, now, this was replicated to a certain extent but a very lesser, much lesser extent in Britain. So we started picking up on on those kind of stories as well in the in the uh, probably the early nineteen fifties. Some of the first stories um, about UFOs in Britain appeared in, in the in the press, the national press, and the local press in Britain. But we didn't have the same uh, huge number of sightings that happened across America. We had the Flying Saucer Working Party, which is um, something set up by the by the government, but it didn't get very far. And of course, the outcome was you know, there's nothing to see here. Move along. So in terms of our um, you know, in Britain, there wasn't a huge amount, although it did make um, new, newsreel, uh, you know, the, the news programs of the day. Um, so there were interviews with airliner crews and, and other people and some fighter pilots before the RAF told them, you can't talk about this without permission. So those things do exist as well. So there was some talk about it in the in the media, whether it was t- uh, you know, newsreels um, or, or, or print, but it, not as much as America. Now, in 1954, there was a huge wave of sightings across France in the, in the autumn of that year. And it was almost that if you look at the, lo- the papers across France for a period from about sort of mid-August right through the end of the year, not a day went by without not just one report of a UFO, but tens of reports. In, in mid-October that year, it was, 
some of the some of the day the probably about two or three day period there was something like 40 50 60 reports across france each day and it wasn't just in one tiny area it was right across the country um and it was it wasn't just daylight you know discs in the in the sky at daylight or lights in the sky at night these were um saucers that were seen in fields at the side of roads when people were driving down uh, down country lanes there were things that were sitting in the middle of roads even and, and stopping cars uh, and then they had these humanoids next to them that were reported. Um, some were like hairy dwarfs, and other times they looked a bit more human. So there's whole loads of stories from then. How many of them are true? Then you, you can't really say. But it, it was this. It was almost like a fever that spread across France in in, in the second half of that year. Um, but of course, by '56, that had died down a bit. Uh, but you saw the the emphasis shift from America just being a purely American phenomenon to something that was much more worldwide. And just before we get to some of the contents of the book, Graham, paint that picture of where are we technologically? What's in the skies? What is the Mm -hmm. pinnacle of technology people would maybe be used to seeing? I think people then probably had less knowledge of what was in the sky than we do now. Um, Same with technology just in modern day. What sort of things have people got? Just to kind of set the scene for what we're going to talk about. Well, if you're, talking, if you're talking about kind of things flying, because obviously people are looking most of the stuff in the books to do with you know, things in the sky. So, yes, you still have weather balloons. You have various types of balloons, um, ones that usually have instrument packages on them. So um, ones for high altitude research, because we're doing a lot of that kind of thing here. But they were known by the pilots. You know, they were quite common. You saw them quite a lot. People on the ground saw them quite a bit as well. In terms of aircraft, commercial airliners, so you know the ones you went on your holidays to, or you flew across across America to, or you went um, on the first package holidays, they were propeller driven mostly still. Um, so the, the the kind of the the most common and the most up to date ones were from the Douglas Company. They were like DC sixes, four engined aircraft, but they were still propeller driven. The first jet airliners were still a couple of years away, really coming into mainstream service. Um, now, in terms of jet fighters and jet bombers in, in the air forces, yes, those existed. They were getting slightly more sophisticated from the first ones. The first supersonic aircraft were coming out and they were just going into service about that time as well. Um, although the, the t- dates are just beyond the, f- the time frame of this book for mass, serv- uh, mass produ- uh, production of these particular aircraft. So we're just on the cusp of a, a kind of a faster aeroplanes so these are still sort of first and second generation uh, jet fighters. So you're looking at um, F-86 Sabres for the uh, American Air Force, which are the kind of Korean War vintage airplanes, if you, if you like. So you know maybe a few years beforehand, but they're still in service. And in fact, in some air forces, they were still using propeller-driven airplanes, which for were Second World War vintage. And actually, one of those we'll talk about in a minute as well uh, when we're talking about the book in depth. So there's a bit of a miss, uh, kind of a, a sorry, um, a kind of a mixture of of airplanes you know, in the skies. In terms of rockets, yes, the, the Americans and the Russians were experimenting with rockets at, at, during this time frame. Um, it wasn't just the V2s that they'd captured from the Germans, they were developing their own. So they they'd progressed to improved V2s, and then they were building their own designs based on that technology. And it wasn't a million miles away from it, but it was sufficiently improved that they were almost on, again, almost on the cusp of being able to put a satellite in orbit, uh, but not quite that far. 
Um, and, the Ameri- and the Americans and the Russians were now engaged in a kind of technological race to try and do that kind of thing or to actually, you know, sort of get somebody towards the moon because that was the ultimate goal. You know, whoever controls the stars might control the Earth. So there was always a push out of, out of um, you know, to, away from the Earth. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of te- technological um, kind of breakthroughs just on the horizon, but they're not there yet in terms of the mid-50s. So let's get to the book then, Graham, Chasing mm. Shadows. Beautiful cover, like you mentioned, the artwork again oh, yeah. by uh, Dan and Olaf at 33 Ounce Creative. If folks want to check them out for any artistic needs, um, very much uh, worth doing so. Um, Captain Thomas Mantle is a case that is well known in the history books for being a pilot who, should I say allegedly, Graham, I know you like to keep things yeah. factual. Um, he was killed, we know that, but for chasing and trying to intercept a UFO. Um, but you've written in this book about a potential second similar incident to this. And I think this is something that caught a little bit of attention last year as we heard David Grush and co. talk about the UFO topic and have military personnel been killed mm. after coming into contact or through any sort of experience with these unidentified objects. And it's something that does really capture the imagination. It's quite sinister but I think it's something that people kind of gravitate towards. So tell us about this particular case. Yeah, so I'll put a caveat straight away. Like the Thomas Mantell case, it is allegedly. Um, because the Thomas Mantell case, you know, the, the jury's out as to what happened there, whether he was chasing uh, a, a balloon, whether he was chasing Venus, or whether indeed it was a UFO. And it depends on which side of the fence and what bits of information you, you, you choose to look at as to what influences your opinion on that. Now, this is a similar one, and it's actually not as clear-cut either, because... Um, the, the information is a bit kind of secondhand, but it actually happened eight years after the Thomas Mantell case, almost to the to the to the day. So this is January '56, and it's actually the same unit that uh, Thomas Mantell was with. So that's the Kentucky United Air National Guard, and it's actually the same type of airplane as well. It's the F-51 Mustang, which is involved. So this is you have all these little parallels. But um, he's called Lee Merkel, and he's a commander of that particular unit. He'd been a World War II veteran. He'd fought, uh, I think he'd flown something like 140 combat missions in North Africa and Italy. Um, he was dec- highly decorated. He'd, I think he'd left the Air Force after the war. He'd done some work with the Veterans Administration, and then he'd come back. He was regarded as possibly one of the best Mustang pilots that there was still flying in the, in, in the time of 56. And... Um, in the area of Kentucky, there'd been some uh, UFO sightings at the beginning of January, and they dispatched jets up to, to investigate these. But when the jets had got near these contacts, then they just fled, and the jets had never, the jet pilots had never, never managed to catch these things. But later, this is towards the end of the month, so it's actually the last day of the month, um, and a similar thing apparently happened, and jets were sent up. But they couldn't catch and the, these UFOs. But jets back then had limited fuel anyway. They would burn quite a lot of their fuel actually just getting up to altitude. So therefore, their kind of loiter time and their patrol time and their combat time was very limited before they had to come back to base because air, you know, in-flight refueling wasn't really a thing back then. Um, but a propeller-driven aircraft, albeit a much slower aeroplane than the jet fighters, could stay up longer. And so therefore, it was more useful in, in, in maybe, you know, if you're looking for something that you don't know where it is. So he apparently, and this is according to, you know, to um, not to documentation, but to things that people have been told at the time. He, he was sent up after this UFO. And then the, ne- and the next thing is, he's about 30-odd thousand feet up, and he's saying, I'm fine, this thing's below me, um, I'm going to have a look. 
this is kind of echoes of Mantel's case where he said he was at a certain altitude, it's above me and I'm going to close in and have a look as well. So you can see all these, these, these parallels. And the next thing that apparently happened was that the Air Force Base or the Air Force, sorry, were, were, were contacted by a civilian to say this, uh, there's aircraft wreckage over this farm. Um, and unfortunately, he died. He, he, he perished in, in the crash. Now, when it came to the uh, official um, documents in terms of the crash, the, the crash investigation, there was no mention of UFOs at all. But there's a quite a large redacted section, uh, section in the report, which makes you wonder, well, what, what did they take out? Um, but actually, the, the person who this all hinges on is um, a guy called Frank Edwards. And some people might be aware of who he was. He was a famous uh, radio show host, uh, announcer and writer in the 50s and 60s. And he had a deep interest in UFOs. And it wasn't just an interest. He was actually quite well connected to a lot of people as well. He, ha he had numerous contacts, not just in the industry, but in the Air Force. And one of them was actually Lee Merkel. He, in fact, to the point where he was actually a friend. He was a, he was a close friend of his. And, um, and Frank Edwards had actually been informed you know, by ch through channels or, or on the quiet that he had, in fact, been chasing a UFO that day um, and, and various things like that. So it wasn't a case of... Uh, you know, it was just a, he, he just had some kind of ordinary flying accident. Now, the, the stuff, the various bits entered the news, but nothing about UFOs. However, NICAP, um, you know, the, the National Investigations Committee of, of uh, Anonymous Phenomenon, um, Aerial Phenomenon, sorry, they, they got involved in this case eventually uh, and, and tried to, you know, try to get some information out. But um, it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, Frank Edwards, I'm just going to read something out from the book, if you don't mind, uh, just a little bit. Frank Edwards himself actually gave a talk at a, at a meeting which was um, organized by a group called Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York. It was one of the kind of little, um, sort of groups back then. They had a newsletter each month, but they did lectures as well. Um, and uh, Frank Edwards gave this this, um, this talk in April 56, so not long after, after the event. And he said that um, three weeks later on January 31st, just before I went on the air, I got a call from our Bloomington studio. We've got a picture for you of the wreckage of a National Guard plane that crashed down here. Um, and then he says, the following day, I discovered through a friend of mine in Louisville that the jets had been up again after unidentified objects south of Bloomington, just as on the 8th of the month, and the jets had lost them. But Colonel Merkel, who was in charge of the National Guard Air Base at Louisville, had taken off in a P-51 Mustang. Um, he had oxygen tanks and the plane was in excellent condition. He got up because he could fly longer than the jets and the jets were trying to vector him on the UFO. And he, got, and he goes on to actually talk about um, you know how he was uh, he was trying to chase it how he he got above it and he said I'm looking down on it I'm going to close in and then the next thing they know it's crashed so there's you know it depends again it depends on who you believe you know um, and what you think about the entire subject as to whether you think there's something in, in that or not but in terms of Frank Edwards who yeah yes he was a believer but he was he was clued up about a lot of things back then uh, he didn't sort of go into huge wild fantasies most of the time, um, and he, he was well connected. So if people were telling him things you know, on the quiet, then there might well have been some truth to it. 
I like that uh, civilian saucer intelligence New York is CSI New York, which I'm That's sure was a crime scene investigation New York program <laughs> back in the day. But that was the original, the civilian saucer intelligence. That needs to be picked up by a TV studio. Um, and I wonder, going back to that uh, official US Air Force accident report you mm-hmm. mentioned, and I, if people are watching on YouTube, I'm looking off to the side, um, but only because Graham sent me some of the content through that um, he's talking about. And I'm looking at the report itself, so I'm not just ignoring Graham. Um, like you say, if that's an A4 page, you're looking at a fifth of the page is redacted, that big block. What is likely to be within that redacted section for you, Graham? Do you think that's going to be, as part of this incident, it's likely this was an unidentified flying object or saucer that was chased? Is it something more personal details, military-based? What, what, what What's your thinking? It, it could be either, and it could be something about um, the, the conditions of the aeroplanes. It's more, if it's redacted, it's more likely to be information in terms of personal details or to do with UFOs. It could be, it could well be either, Andy. I, I really don't know. And I don't think anybody's actually come up with what it is yet. There's been, I know there have been people who have suggested it. Um, and then the, the last thing about this story is that uh, Lee Merkel's son ended up being a reporter on a Massachusetts newspaper. Uh, and he was quite young when his dad died. Um, and the, the Air Force basically told his, his mother that it was just, you know, that there was oxygen failure. Like the Mantel case again, you know, there was um, you know somebody he died because he didn't have oxygen. Um, but this is when um, Lee Merkel Jr. referred the case to NICAP, uh, and he tried to get them to say, you know, can you can you send me what information you've got? And that was when they sent him um, an interview they had with a reporter who'd also received information independent of Frank Edwards to say, you know, he was chasing your dad was chasing UFOs that day. So, yeah. And uh, funny enough, I mean, I do remember from, and I've got this in the book as well, that uh, back in the old days of the bulletin boards, that before your time, Andy, probably this is like 1990s, <laughs> um, Lee Merkel's son was on there on one of the UFO uh, uh, bulletin boards uh, of the dial-up connection days, actually talking about this incident, and, and I had to find that. Uh, and I put that in the book as well, because he, he talks about the he starts crash. It's, it's an interesting one, and for me, it, do, it does stay vague, doesn't it? And it leaves open mm. to interpretation it as does. much as I'd love to say. Same as you. I know you Moment. want to bang straight in, Graham, with this is ET, but we have to we have to be fair here, don't we? And just leave it open. Uh, and you do that well. You do that well reporting on the facts. Um, moving on then, a different case within the book. You mentioned one from France. This is an international, it's a worldwide phenomenon as the, the quote famously says. And you've not just stuck to US cases here. So go on, tell us about the Orly Phantom from 18th of February, 1956. Yeah, so it's actually the, the last few minutes of the 17th and, and, and a few hours into the 18th. And this is Orly Airport, which is one of the major Paris air, uh, airports nowadays. And it was still, it was the, you know, the major airport back then as well. Um, and it actually started a bit um, kind of earlier in the evening. And there was a US um, transport, uh, sorry, later that, that same day, the 18th, there was a US transport plane who were down in the south of France. They were, they were just taken up from Marseille and they were flying north. And they seen a, a kind of a, this star-shaped object in the sky. And they didn't think much more of it until later in the day, where, or a couple of days later, when all this press reporting came out about this Paris incident that turned out to happen on the same day. So this is the kind of thing where things were seen, you know, multiple things were being seen on the same day. But actually earlier that day, about midnight, so you know, 12 hours, 24 hours beforehand, 
all the airport was effectively besieged by an object that was flying around uh, and causing mayhem in terms of aircraft going out and, and planes having to avoid it and uh, it following aircraft coming into the airport, the radar operators picking it up and no knowing what it was. Uh, whatever it was was showing not just a blip on the radar, but what they called a banana-shaped fog around it. So it was this kind of weird uh, um, kind of contact that was being shown. Um, and by the time the French Air Force actually got interceptors up to go and try and investigate, it was three hours afterwards. Um, and of course, they were too late. And there's shades of the Washington um, sort of, um, you know, events of July 52, where the Air Force turned up hours after the, these events started. And every time the jets come, the UFOs disappear. When, the, when the, the jets go back for fuel, the UFOs come back again. So we have this strange object that People, the thought was a winking red light. So, well, you just think it was another aircraft, but this thing hovered at times. It then shot off at, at credible speed, only to stop again um, and say it was following. It followed a Swiss air aeroplane. There was a, a, a Air France DC three uh, pilot by uh, Michel Desavoy, I believe the pilot's name was, and he was flying on a, a regular mail run to London and back, which happened pretty much every night. And as soon as he took off, he saw a, this this thing was you know, just you know, almost in front of his aeroplane. Uh, he was told by the tower, it's you know, it's there. Um, he saw it just to the right of his aircraft. It was heading in his direction. He had to turn the aeroplane away from it. And then the next thing he knows, it disappears. And then he gets a call from the, the tower and all you to say, it's right above you. So there's all this kind of weird and wonderful stuff going on. And it, it, it appeared, it was probably over a period of three or four hours that this, this object was very very close to all the airport and the strange thing was because it was it was picked up on the um on the civilian radar at the airport but not on a nearby military base's military radar which was very very strange because they were asked if they had any knowledge of it and they said no now obviously we don't know whether they did or not but they they denied it so we, you have to take their their words at face value uh, but yeah it was very very strange and it didn't just make the french newspapers either it, it appeared you know this story uh, appeared in the british newspapers it appeared in the american newspapers as well let me ask where is radar technology at this point and how reliable is it it's reasonably reliable. It still suffers from things like radar angels, from uh, weather um, you know, effects, uh, what they call anomalous propagation. But it's 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 certainly far removed from wartime radar, where um, you know you would have a um, you, you blip, the a kind of blip you had to work it out from a line on on a chart on on a, on a display, which would just go up and down. And you had to work out where distance and, and vector from uh, from two lines, basically. Whereas by 56, you actually had a what they call a PPI, which was a, you know, what we think of a radar system now, you know, with a moving line going around a circle, picks up a blip. That's what you were, that's what you would see in, in a radar, a radar controller station in those days. So it was much better. It still had problems in terms of it could pick up, you know, um, uh, ground, um, you know, kind of uh, clutter and things like that. But they were always, they were getting better. And, and the people who used these systems, they were much more in tune with knowing where the faults lie, uh, lay and whether there was things like that would happen. It wasn't just a case of, you know, here's a radar system, just go and use it. We won't tell you about things that might happen. They were really well trained by then. And of course, if you were working in a busy airport like Ollie, you would be really well trained. I'm going to ask you to to guesstimate or, or speculate on, given all you know about the history of what was in the air, mm. the technology at the time, and what was being reported. How much of these of these sightings do you think were 
misidentifications compared to being something truly anomalous? Some of them would be because invariably you know, human humans aren't aren't infallible. So some things would have been kind of mistaken for ordinary items. But in the case, I mean, you just go back to the Orly case. This thing was moving around at two thousand miles an hour occasionally, and then it's coming to a dead halt. So you haven't got any technology back in those days that could do that. Even the supersonic airplanes of the day, that the ones which were just almost coming into production, which they were still on test, basically, they weren't capable of doing that kind of speed. You'd be looking at a rocket to go 2,000 miles an hour. And of course, a rocket can't stop in midair. Um, so the technology wasn't available to do this kind of stuff. Uh, yes, helicopters were around. And a lot of the, or at least some of the, the cases from France in 54, possibly were helicopters, especially if they were seen at a distance from by somebody. Let's say a, an object in a field, maybe half a mile or a mile away, because some of the cases were like that. And if something looks like a little shiny object with maybe a couple of figures walking around it, uh, and then there's you know two little lines left in the field in terms of traces the following day, um, and you don't see rotors at that, at that distance, and you might not see it leave, yes, okay, that might well be a helicopter. But in, in a lot of the cases, some of the things and the way that they're described as disappearing when the witnesses come across them um, and the fact that they could hover in midair and then fly off and all the rest of it, that's not the technology that was around then. And helicopters couldn't go at that speed anyway. So uh, you just have to kind of think, well, OK, we've ruled out this out, we've ruled that out. What's left? And what's left is quite fantastic, really. Um, it's, you know, it, it just makes the, the mind boggle put a number on it percentage what's what's the comparison anomalous to misidentification I, I can't i mean there will be it, you know it blue books when blue book had twelve thousand cases over a, what 17 year period they still had a significant as in hundreds of cases which they couldn't you know at all explain and that was even after they'd written off some uh, quite a large percentage maybe 10 percent or so as being balloons just because balloon was mentioned in a possibility or that was mm -hmm. one 100 miles away or 10 miles away you know and that they would say oh well, that was a balloon then um so you know they were also making things up as they went along to try and solve cases so you can see from that that there was probably quite a significant proportion of those twelve thousand cases which bore more needed more scrutiny if not yes okay they're ufos it wasn't the case that it was only a, a you know a very very small percentage like five percent three percent um i think the in fact in this book i talk about the fifth the the um special report 14 which is a blue book uh, report where they went through a whole lot of cases and they they put all the numbers through computers etc tried to look for trends and it came out with a figure of three percent and the three percent wasn't three percent unknown it was three percent that we can probably explain if we have some more information okay and what percentage were et <laughs> Still nothing. you don't okay. get me you don't get me that easy <laughs> no no um and one final uh part of the book you wanted to talk mm. about uh, an incident of pilot deviation um this is one you said the pilot before we recorded flip-flopped mm. on didn't he as opposed to the story but let's talk about that one so he's called Raymond Ryan. He's a um, he flies for um, oh, it's one of the one of the big airlines. I think it was American Airlines, and he's flying a Convair two forty from um, down in New York up to Buffalo. So this is the northeast of the United States, um, and it's one of these uh, kind of uh, scheduled flights where he goes to a number of places en route. Uh, one of which was Syracuse, um, but midway before he gets to Syracuse, there's this 
well, it's quite a quite bright light in the sky and it, it, nobody knows what it is. And it gets to the point where um, he he's in contact with Griffiths Air Force Base, which is one of the local uh, military uh, airfields. And they ha- are having difficulty trying to work out what it is and they haven't got jets up after it yet. And they actually say to him, can you follow it? Um, can you deviate from your scheduled flight path and follow it? Which he does, or at least he said he did. And it actually took him to the point where he was flying just over Lake Ontario, which is you know almost into Canada. Uh, and he's five miles over the, over the edge of the lake and, and heading into Canada. And he calls it a day because he's not getting any closer to this light. Um, by that time, the, jet, the jets had been scrambled, but they never caught up with it either. Now, afterwards... Uh, when he's when he lands at Buffalo because he gets he also gets there in the end, he then there's reporters obviously you know asking him stuff and uh, and he gives them quotes one of which is you know that I did yes I did follow this UFO, um, so that appears in the papers. He's on a chat show because television was was a thing then, and he's on a program called Meet the Millers, and him and his first officer, a guy called Neff, are being interviewed by the two hosts. And they talk about um, you know what happened in this incident, and they say, you know, and it does come that they actually followed it, and that they turned back five miles you know, over the lake. So that had to be a deviation from their flight path because that wasn't the way to get to Buffalo. Um, and then when it actually comes much later, when uh, Donald Kehoe gets involved, he was a noted thorn in the side of the Air Force, but also one of the direct, he was a director of NICAP in the early days. So he gets involved and he writes to Ryan and says, well, you know, can you give me some more information about what's happened beyond what you've said in the press? And Ryan basically contacts him and says, I didn't deviate from my course. You know, it's a, a flat denial. Now, you can understand why somebody might say that, because really, you know, airline pilots shouldn't be, shouldn't be you know, sort of going after chasing after ghosts or chasing after shadows even uh, without you know, authorization from their company, not, you know, not the Air Force. They shouldn't be telling them what to do. So it, it got escalated to the, uh, the Civilian Aeronautics Administration, which is the, their version of the, our Civil Aviation Authority. Um, and they asked, the NICAP asked them, the CAA, to basically investigate so they must have contacted Ryan because it came, they came back with a flat refu- um, denial from Ryan to say, you know, I, I deviated from course. And they that also contacted American Airlines and they said, no, he hadn't either. They came up with a figure of, I think it was 49 minutes for the flight time from, um, I think it was Albany to Syracuse because that was the leg of the, the flight where he deviated from. They said it was 49 minutes. The, lo- the flight log that, he, that uh, Ryan is supposed to have filled in and submitted said, 48 minutes flying time so they said well he couldn't possibly divert from course because it's within a minute um but it so it got a bit kind of you know he said she said however the uh, it, it then got into the hands of the, of the civilian aeronautics board which was like kind of like an overseeing um uh, kind of uh, organization and they did their own investigation now it also came up with you know he didn't deviate but there was a, a safety officer from that organization who on the quiet apparently told Kehoe, yes, he did. Uh, he contacted, you know, he was in contact with Griffiths Air Force Base by radio. By radio. So it was, again, one of these things where, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a conflict in, in the terms of the information. There's a, you know, there's a difference of opinion. Um, and, you know, he was quite happy to say, yes, I did all this, up until the point where it became official. And then I think it got a bit kind of, maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying this anymore. 
do you think this is one of the early instances of the stigma around the subject and how it's reported, how it's talked about? It's then it, it seeped into the media and pilots very much feeling this isn't worth my job, this isn't worth the hassle, the stigma, the career. It's certainly one of the high high profile ones, but in terms of stigma of airline pilots, actually that happened for years beforehand. That had that started in the, in the early nineteen fifties. Uh, Ruppelt talks about um, when he when he was still a um, uh, part of Blue Book, and this is I think just around the time of the the two weekends in Washington in, in July fifty two. He uh, is on a stopover on on a commercial flight. Uh, he, he's flying, you know, not as, almost as a civilian, even though he's got his Air Force gear on. Um, and he's, um, I think he goes to a, he sees one of the pilots and he talks to him about UFOs. Have you seen any? Just like an offhand comment. And the guy says, "There's a coffee cross, uh, a coffee shop across the street. Wait there. I'll bring some friends." And you know, six of them or so turn up, and they're all airline pilots, and they basically talk to him about that. And most of the, and the gist of it is. We're not going to tell people about what we see because it go, you know, it just goes south on us. So the stigma was there much earlier, but of course that was getting ramped up all the time. And by that, by '56, pilots, not just uh, American uh, military pilots, not just in America but also in the UK, were being told categorically, "You will not tell the press about what you see without prior, um, you know, authorization from from the Air Force." Um, and actually, it was a kind of it was a contravention of regulations in the states. And therefore, if they had gone across uh, against what was called Air Force letter, uh, sorry, Air Force Regulation Two Hundred, then there would have been severe penalties. You know, they could have been put into jail. Um, you know, and, and the careers ruined if the Air Force had taken, uh, you know, had actually done what they said they would do to the pilots who who transgressed those rules. And in 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 Britain, um, the the RAF pilots, after a few initial um, contacts with the press, the RAF turned around and said, "Yeah, you cannot talk to the press." unless we say so. And of course, they never said so. And when they did say so, however, it was always, we didn't really see anything. You know, it was all kind of watered down. Graham, before we wrap up with some modern day chat, I want to uh, touch on some listener questions for you. Um, Some of those were built into the body of the interview. So thanks if you got in touch. Uh, Question from Max Young. Max asks, in your view, Graham, what is the most compelling UFO, UFO encounter of the previous century? Oh, compelling! Yeah, I like this uh, the Socorro, the nineteen sixty four, you know, Lonnie Zamora. That that's that's the one I really do like, and it's the one that keeps cropping up every so often. Uh, so that's that's Why? one of them at least. Why? It's just because it's a really interesting story. You know, he's chasing a, a speeding vehicle out of town. He sees this and he hears this roar, thinks it's an explosion, thinks it's an ammunition shack blowing up. He drives off down this desert road. He comes over a crest and he sees what he thinks is a car. It's crashed. It's up. It's upended on its tail, uh, with two body, uh, two people next to it. And he thinks there's been a car crash, and he gets out of his car to investigate. And of course, these beings, uh, you know, climb into this this thing, and, and it takes off and shoots away. Um, so it's just one of those amazing stories from back then, and it's one of the ones I remember reading about when I was really young. Um, and it, it's probably just one of those that stuck with me. I mean, there are others, but that, that's one of them. So. Any others then? You mentioned others, so go on, give me one yeah, more. okay. So more recently, the ones I've got into, um, the, the, the one I keep talking about when I talk about the Foo Fighters, the, the, you know, the, the disc that was shot at by the, the gunners on the Wellington bomber, uh, the one that, that's an orange disc that comes behind a, an, an RAF Wellington, and the, the tail gunner shoots at it, it moves around to the wingtip, uh, and they're still shooting at it. It moves around to the front of the airplane. The nose gunner shoots at it, and then it shoots off into the heavens, uh, all without any kind of damage or, or any kind of effect on this light 
that, uh, that these colonies are shooting at uh, during the middle of World War Two. So that's a really, really strange story uh, that I just don't have an answer to at all. It doesn't match any kind of you know, German technology. So that's a really weird one. Um, but then again, I mean, I guess a compelling one of the, of the modern day is the Nimitz encounters, and you know, I'm, I'm not obviously don't need to discuss that one. Well, I'm sure we're all familiar with it. Uh, but that's such a multi-layered story. I mean, you have radar, you have previous events, you have jet pilots. Um, you know, just not just one. You have multiple pilots who saw it. Uh, who, who saw this object uh, that you know they filmed it. it it has incredible speed acceleration maneuverability uh it's light years almost ahead of uh, your know, contemporary technology so yeah these are really compelling stories uh, question from newman and you'll have to get your notepad and pen out for this one graham nah okay. i think you'll be okay um so here we go with aerospace companies in the US having experienced in the mid-1950s a bit of an anti-gravity craze, does Graham consider it possible that some of the reported sightings of flying saucers, at least in the States, were actually of experimental aircraft and test platforms for new propulsion systems, such as Avro, uh, Avro Canada? especially considering that certain reported design elements of UFOs back then seem to be reflecting elements of traditional 1950s US aircraft design. For example, porthole windows, silver appearance due to leaving military aircraft unpainted, etc. So Avro Canada's designs went nowhere. I mean, John Frost was the designer of the, um, of the was it Project Y? Uh, it had numbers, I think, as well, if I remember rightly, the project name. But yeah, it went nowhere. They managed to make a, a mock-up of it, but it, it didn't go anywhere beyond that. Um, in terms of um, anti-gravity, funnily enough, I've just uh, bought a book about Townsend Brown, um, I believe, I think that his name is. It's a, it's, a, it's a history of him. And there's some interesting things said about him in so much as he was allegedly parachuted into Germany to uh, look at technology they were working on towards the end of the war. I haven't read it yet. It's still in my to-be-read pile. So I'd like to have a look at that before I sort of answer that question because I don't feel I'm sort of sufficiently informed about the possibilities for what anti-gravity kind of research was being done at that time. From what I'm aware of at the moment, there wasn't that much nothing that came to fruition anyway but that doesn't mean to say there wasn't something locked away or there's information that i'm not aware of yet uh, and final question from the listeners uh had chris barnett i'd moved that a line there has to be uh, graham it's definitely aliens isn't it it's definitely aliens chris not i don't know <laughs> sorry uh, <laughs> I, graham, I, was gonna, I was gonna write a sign andy and say it. it's definitely aliens but i forgot <laughs> No, and if anyone's hearing Graham for the first time, Graham, even face-to-face when we meet for coffees, Graham's one of the few people, actually, Graham's the person that I've met most face-to-face since I got involved in this whole podcasting thing, uh, because he lives pretty pretty close to where I stay, well, reasonably close, Um, we enjoy meeting up for a coffee, but Graham is as difficult to get an answer out of on the alien ET side of things, the speculation side of things in person as he is recording. So uh, if you've missed out on the in-joke there, that's what that is. But Graham, I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming into modern day, okay? So uh, things are about to go all colourful for you. Um, I want to take your view on where we are now. Um, It was a busy 2023. I think 2024 has started off very much the same. In a way, I think some folks are almost getting a bit greedy on what they expect as a, a quiet or busy busy UFO news period. Um, where are we then? So we've had talks of whistleblowers coming forward. We've had David Grush hit the news cycle and come back out. 
talk to me. What what are your thoughts as a historian on, on the UFO subject and where it's landing now? No pun think, intended. Yeah, we've had periods, maybe not as intensive as this, because the way that the kind of 24-hour news cycle and the fact that you can get instant news nowadays is a bit different from historic, you know, more of a historical perspective. But yeah. we have had periods of time before where there's been kind of a, a bit of a, you know, impetus in terms of pushing things forward. Uh, at the end of the 1960s, with the, you know, with the, the congressional hearings, uh, such as they were, there was a symposium on UFOs, the Condon Committee, uh, the, you know, the University of Colorado project uh, from Edward Condon. So people, obviously, we know how that ended up. But before those things concluded, there was a bit of a kind of, oh, you know, we're in exciting times here. Hopefully, we're going to get some, you know, sort of movement from the government. Hopefully, there's going to be a scientific push towards understanding what's happened. Now, we're sort of in that position again, albeit we've moved on a little bit. So we have not just the impetus, but we actually have a bit of momentum as well now because the you know the politicians, for whatever reason, and I'm not entirely sure that all of their intentions are we want to get to the bottoms of UFOs. I think some of it might be also be a little bit you know of case of we're wanting to appeal to voters uh, or certain you know certain um, sides of the vote as well, uh, just to show that we're doing something which is quite populist. Uh, I'm, I'm still sort of a bit kind of unsure about how. Uh, pure people's intentions are, if you like, but that's just me being old and cynical, I guess. Um, so yes, we've moved on a bit from the initial bits, and we've had a repeats, obviously, of the of the hearings. So that's great. So hopefully, we're going to get some more of those. But the thing that we're still missing are the other whistleblowers. You know, we've had Lou Elizondo. I know he's not a whistleblower in so much he's stood in front of a, a, of you know Congress, but he's effectively the first, your patient zero. He, he's the first person that sort of came out. You know, from 2017 and start talking about this and then of course we've got david grush uh who who stood and, and said the, you know the things that you mentioned before um and also ryan graves and, and david fraver you know stood in for, or sat in front of a congressional committee to talk about the, you know about ufos i'd like to see that more often i'd like to see other people there as well um but maybe not necessarily the names that we know there have to be people from out the ones that we don't know of because it would be nice to see much you know, unknown people coming out of the woodwork and saying what they have to say, um, rather than the same names that we've heard, you know, just coming up with the same stuff for, for decades now. Um, and, and there's all sorts of names being thrown about when you when you look at Twitter as to say, you know, this person should sit there, that person should be there. You know, anybody from Bob Lazar to Stephen Greer is mentioned. Um, and I think... I guess at some stage I thought, well, yeah, maybe it might be nice if Bob Lazar you know, might testify. But I think if the, if him or Stephen Greer did, it might just set things back because it would just be it would just probably end up as a circus. Circus was the word I was thinking there, potentially uh, turning into rightly or wrongly. I know there'd be a lot of interest in that uh, regardless. And I wonder what's what's something you're maybe looking forward to coming out this year, be it. Is, is it whistleblowers? Is it media? Is it a documentary? Is it is it a book or some something? Or you know, what is it you're kind of looking forward to seeing or hearing this year? Lou's book would be the thing that I would most want to read. I think. Um, obviously, I, I don't know what else might be coming out, so I can't say. And in terms of other things, I think it'll be something that I just don't expect. That's what I would like to see because I think that will have the more impact. You know, you're always going to expect maybe new videos, whether it's Jeremy Corbell or whether somebody else bringing something out. Documentaries, uh, yeah, they're great, um, but I think their value is actually for trying to inform uh, the general public. You know, James Fox's documentaries are brilliant for that, for getting people mm. you know who have maybe either a superficial or no 
knowledge of ufology to get into the subject and and you know like kind of a starter i think uh, the phenomenon was a brilliant thing for that my, my wife loved it you know I, uh, she watched it with me and she she got a lot out of it so i think that that's there the value of those and other documentaries some of the ones that you see on netflix and, and paramount and whatever oh, just some of them are just awful uh so I'm, I, don't, I don't really look forward to documentaries as much as i, pro- I might once have and in terms of other people's books it just depends on what's coming down the turnpike. I'm not aware of anything beyond Lou's, which I'm really excited about hearing, but that doesn't mean to say that if something's announced next month, I, I won't be. Um, and media, the stuff that appears in terms of videos and, and, and pictures, I know your your view on this is, well, it's a picture. It, it, you know, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't get me very far. I think that's right, isn't it? Uh, with but, the, yeah. I mean, I, I like to see them. And same with the videos, like, but mm-hmm. it's I don't hang my hat on them. Yeah, you know, um, me too. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's my fair. that's yeah, and I think we've discussed this at length as well in private that it doesn't really get any you any far because things can be fake nowadays as well. There's so many different ways to fake video, never mind you know static imagery. That it, yeah. I I don't have enough of a filter to be able to discriminate you know fact from fiction when I when I'm seeing you know when I'm seeing a photograph anymore. Uh, and now when you've got deep fake technology that it, you know anything I guess that's video can probably go the same way. So it would have to be some with provenance and i guess that's maybe why the, the those three FLIR videos from the u.s navy are still you know are still the kind of gold standard if you like for nowadays yeah. and especially the gimbal footage because it does have a chain a chain of evidence if you like and it has a you know you can see where it came from and it's almost impeachable you know kind of impeccable sources so yeah I think many years ago, Graham Adele came out with her seminal work, Chasing Favements, and you've broken the mould by uh, releasing Chasing Shadows now, so you are the Adele of the UFO topic in my eyes. And if you've not picked up Graham's work, it's an essential look at the history of the UFO topic, not just Chasing Shadows, but going back through his his other work. I'm not going to list them all. He's done the interviews. If you enjoyed this one, go back and listen to them. Um, they are very much encyclopedias that you need to, to jump into to look at the history of a UFO topic. That, I think, goes some way like Graham says, to explaining and exploring what's happening now and what mistakes have been made in the past or what, you know, what, what's went well in the past and we can kind of learn from. Um, if you've got the book already, fantastic. Go on to Amazon, please, and leave Graham a review. That means a lot to him, I know. And also it, it really helps in kind of getting the, the, I don't know, does it help the, the algorithm on there? I don't know. But do you know what? I think when you jump on Amazon and see 55 five-star reviews then, yeah. Yeah, that's the way it works. Yeah, if you get a, if you get to see good reviews or just reviews in general, you're more likely to think, oh, it might be worth picking up a copy. So yeah, that does help. And Graham, what are you working on now? And any appearances this year you want to let folks know about? So I am working on a sequel to the Foo Fighters book um, because I've found a whole lot more information in the National Archives, which has never seen the light of day before by the looks of it. It's certainly never been published anywhere. So uh, yeah, I think that should uh, get a wider audience. And I have been invited to a conference at Hull in September, the Out Limits uh, conference. So I will be popping down there to do a, a lecture and hopefully sell some books down there. Wonderful. I might pop down to that one with you as well. So we never know, might pop along. Um, not that that's reason for anyone to go. If anything, it might be reason not to go, so I might not announce it. Um, but Graham, as always, mate, thank you very much for joining us. Folks, go and pick up a copy of Graham's work, jump back into the archive and listen to his interviews. And Graham's appeared on Coast to Coast and most other UFO podcasts and shows available as well. So always worth checking out. Um, a real 
do you know what? You're one of those guys, Graham. You've put in the hard yards on this topic and subject in just a few years, and it's paid dividends for you, um, and you deserve all the yachts you can get. So, so well done. <laughs> Thanks. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show out on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium. YouTube, you can sign up and be a member, or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fox.